Welcome to Bell Curve with Mary Scott, Rachel, and Liz, three friends, three Southern Bells, joining you, smart women, to discuss life, work, relationships, business, everything from the nerdy to the normal, the practical to the philosophical, the head to the heart. Thanks for joining us as we observe, analyze, and often deviate from the standard. been women in the United States military since the Revolutionary War, and of course, women continue to serve in it today in record numbers. As of the most recent data I could find from the Defense Department, women now make up 20% of the Air Force, 19% of the Navy, 15% of the Army, and 9% of the Marine Corps. Women have also served in allied roles, backfilling positions and jobs that would have been filled by men during times when our men went off to war. Probably the most famous example of that is Rosie the Riveter. Finally, spouses, both male and female, often have to hold the family together uh, when the military member of the family is deployed. This Veterans Day week, yesterday we celebrated Veterans Day, we're celebrating veterans this week. We at Bell Curve wanted to take some time to honor these people, and we send a special, a very special thank you to those listeners out there in our audience who have served in uniform or in an allied role. I'm Mary Scott Hunter here with my co-hosts, Liz Bashirs and Rachel Breyers. So let's kick it off. Uh, here we are, ladies, in 2019. Uh, and in 2016, Secretary of Defense Ash Carter approved final plans from military service branches and the U.S. Special Ops Command to open all combat jobs to women and authorize the military to begin integrating female combat soldiers, quote, right away. Now, I'd, I would say to that, American women have been serving in combat roles since the Revolutionary War. And to that point, at the Revolutionary Battle of Monmouth in June of 1778, Mary Hayes, or sometimes if you'll remember your American history class, she's called Molly Pitcher. Mary Hayes at Tended to, to the soldiers by giving them water. Just before the battle started, she found a spring to service her supply, uh, and two places on the battlefield are now marked as the Molly Pitcher Spring. She spent much of the early days carrying water to soldiers and art- artillerymen until under heavy, often under heavy fire from the British troops. The the weather was very hot that day, and William Hayes, her husband, collapsed during the battle, either wounded or suffering from heat exhaustion. As he was carried off the battlefield, his wife took his place at the cannon and continued to swab and load the cannon using her husband's ramrod. At one point, a British musket ball or a cannonball flew between her legs and tore off the bottom of her skirt. She supposedly said something to the effect of, Quote, well, that could have been worse and went back loading the cannon. We probably had all had uh, moments of embarrassment like that, but uh, probably not from a cannonball. <laughs> so, ladies, let's talk women in combat. I mean, that's always the big hot button issue. Um, first, I want to I want to get to some of your favorite stories about women who've served in the military. Uh, but first, Rachel, when we were talking about this, you asked me about women in combat roles. So what what do we think about that? I'm all for it as long as the qualifications are still 100% of what they would be if the person serving wasn't a woman. Uh, I, I think and know that there are lots of women out there who do make those qualifications. So if, if you can lift the weight, if you can run the distance, if you can man the whatever, you should absolutely be able to serve alongside men. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that's such a lingering question out there. And I just wanted to take it on right away because 
that is where we are in the U.S. military. Women are serving in in every aspect of the military, and I agree. And having served myself, I I do not. I was a JAG, so I wasn't necessarily in a combat role, but I do think that women should be allowed to serve so long as the standards don't change. The standards are the standards, and if you can meet them, you can meet them, and and that's that. I, the the only thing I would add to that is that you know now in the in research communities there there are some academics who are coming out and saying, boy, we're not able to study some of the effects of decisions on hot topic issues because even from an academic research perspective, we're getting shot down as being kind of not correct to even bring up areas for research. So I would just mm-hmm. say, I think I, I, I agree with y'all and goodness, I, I know women at my gym who like the lady I'm thinking of deadlifts 400 pounds. You telling me she wow. can't do, she's like a CrossFit champion. You tell me she can't do, I mean, look, <laughs> she can do more than most men. But I just, I think we have to be open to studying other effects, you know, listening to people who are in the middle of, or in combat units and doing research. And that can't be an off the table research topic. I agree with that. We have to understand the effects of every action that we take in the military. But the problem is, in the past, the military is a is a profession like doctoring, lawyering. It's a it's actually one of the one of the true called out professions. And the problem with precluding women from some aspects of the military is that it hindered them professionally. They couldn't they couldn't rise in the profession. And then what happens is you don't get diversity at the top. You don't get diversity in the leadership, which has a deleterious effect on the on the force structure as a whole. So let's transition to some stories because Veterans Day is a wonderful time to tell some of your favorite stories about women who have served or about people who have served. So uh, do you have any favorite stories of American women or family members who have served and who have served? What I want to say first is thanks for bringing up this topic, Mary Scott, and keeping us mindful of this, you know, such an important day. And, and I did just want to share real quick a few thoughts as a native Alabamian for us. You know, I think we can be especially proud to say that. Did y'all know our state was the first to officially celebrate Veterans Day? Rachel, you little you little researcher, you you, you, you always <laughs> that, I did not know that. That's yeah, awesome. I mean, you know, as some of our history buffs will know, you know, World War One, which was then called the War to End All Wars, ended on the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month, November 11th, 1918. So, I mean, obviously about 40 million men and women, military and civilian died in that horrible war. But, you know, that included more than 116,000 Americans. So it was so hard on us, but it was devastating to Europe. As, as you all know, I mean, many chairs were empty at the dining room table, sons, daughters, husbands, wives. And November 11th was called Armistice Day. And, you know, Many nations paid tribute to those who fought in World War One every year on that day. Obviously, and sadly, it wasn't the war to end all wars. After World War II ended, a Birmingham veteran named Raymond Weeks wanted to expand Armistice Day to include all veterans. So he petitioned leaders like General Eisenhower, who supported the idea. And in 1947, Birmingham held the nation's first Veterans Day parade. Others soon followed, and that's how it became a national tradition. But anyway, Mary Scott, you asked about women in the military and Pepper wrote a book about the Iraq war. So we've both done a bit of reading and looking into heroic stories from that time. So I'll share one from the Iraq war that I especially loved. In 2006, there was a striker brigade moving through Baghdad just across the Tigris River across from the U.S. Embassy. 
and an explosive, explosively formed penetrator, which is you know a really deadly kind of IED, blew up one of the strikers. So there were four people inside, three men and a woman. And so this striker is on fire and they're being shot at. And when the hatch is open to get the folks out, two of the men are pulled out. And the woman, her name, Specialist Van Wert, I don't know her first name, but she was a lab technician. And they say she weighed only like 100, maybe 120 pounds. She was only five foot two or so. So she uses her weapon to, you know, pull out a guy named Nick Wowinski, I think was his name, who was unconscious. And y'all, he was six foot one. And with all of his kit on, he had to weigh something like 250 pounds, according to the commander who told the story. And I, just how that little woman did that is astounding, particularly when you add in smoke and fire and getting shot at. I mean, she must have had adrenaline just shooting through her body, but she drags him out of this striker. And then they say that while she's dragging him back, she's shooting one handed with her M16 and basically got him back. And when they got him to the combat support hospital, they did realize that he was dead. But y'all, that story of just a little woman doing everything she could to save her friend, that is a story that has stayed with me and inspires me so much. Oh my gosh, that is a very inspirational story, Rachel. I am so glad you brought that up. And I love that we have these examples of women who have done these superhuman things in combat situations, in scary situations, in, in a firefight, it, it, it really highlights that, you know, Molly Pitcher or Mary Hayes back in the Revolutionary War wasn't an anomaly. Uh, women have been serving in, in combat roles uh, since the very beginning and continue to. And she, of course, is a hero. I know we're talking about American women today, but one of my favorite reads from the last couple of years has been this Nobel winning book called The Unwomanly Face of War that is about Russian women who served during World War II. And y'all, I I would just highly recommend that book to show how determined and skillful women can be in wartime situations. And like those, those stories were inspiring. They're tragic. There's a reason it won the Nobel Prize for Literature, because it's an incredible read. But for American women, one of the stories I wanted to highlight is uh, Lieutenant Heather Lucky Penny, um, who's in the District of Columbia Air National Guard on September 11th. She had to scramble to get in her jet to go take down United Flight 93. Now, they had to move so quickly that they had they didn't have any weapons on her jet. So she knew that if she had the chance to take it down to stop it from killing thousands of people, like had just happened in, in the World Trade Center and at the Pentagon, um, they didn't know where the next one was headed. She knew that she was going to have to essentially kamikaze mission that Boeing 757. Now she ended up that ended up not being the case. But here was another little twist to it. At the time, she didn't know whether or not her dad, who was a United pilot, who took off from the East Coast, was piloting that plane. Like There was a good chance that her father was going to be the pilot of the plane that she was just tasked with taking down with her own airplane. Um, So the the singular focus of knowing that I'm going to go take off from this uh, base and my task is to make sure that this airplane doesn't hit another building. And somebody I love dearly could be on this plane. It's just mind-boggling to me how, how you can set those things aside and go take on a mission like that. 
Wow. You know, uh, there's a lot of training that the military does to get you in the mindset of handling a handling the moment when the moment comes. But there is also something in a person that you know, some people, the, the reason those stories live on forever, the reason um, Molly Pitcher or Mary Hayes' story lives on forever, and the reason Lucky Penny's story will live on forever is because there's, yes, they there was some training. There was, there was something in their background that trained them to handle that situation, but there's something about them. There is some willpower. There is some strength of spirit. There is some ability to focus and and sacrifice everything for the mission. It's it, you know, that's why we celebrate Veterans Day. I think that is a piece of it that fascinates me. Those stories where someone in a split second found out who they were. You know, mm-hmm. maybe they didn't even know what was inside of them, but that situation brought something so heroic out of them that it took, like you said, Mary Scott, there wasn't time to think of think it through. It was either in them at that moment or it wasn't in them at that moment. Yeah, because the training training helps to helps you handle it, but you figure out who you are in that moment. Let's take things forward a bit to World War II. I personally think of some career fields as those that serve um, and those that serve in them as worthy of thanks around Veterans Day. During World War II, some 350,000 women served in the U.S. Armed Forces, both at home and abroad. They included the Women's Air Force Service Pilots, who on March 10, 2010, were awarded the prestigious Congressional Gold Medal. Meanwhile, widespread male enlistment left gaping holes in the industrial labor force. Between 1940 and 1945, the female percentage of the U.S. workforce increased from 27% to 37%. Huge increase. And by 1945, nearly one out of every four married women worked outside the home. So, thoughts on this, ladies? Did any of your grandmothers or great-grandmothers work in the war industry? And do you have any stories you'd like to share about the Rosies? So, my great-grandmother, Eloise, worked in a Goodyear plant during the war to backfill first, you know, the soldier. Oh, she was a real Rosie. She was a true Rosie. And, y'all, she... I, I think that that experience, she ended up being a supervisor, manager, you know, and just really excelled. So after that experience, she opened up businesses. I think she had a restaurant at one point. She started a, a fabric store in her town and just ended up being this businesswoman. And I really think that she looks back, um, she's passed away now, but looked back and, and saw that experience as something that catapulted her into leadership roles. And she was just a feisty woman. <laughs> so I could just see her in that Goodyear plant being being a wonderful leader and just to think of that that role that she played is um, I, I take great pride in that you know the women during that period of time had an opportunity that they did not have before and they they went to work in the defense industry a, a, a huge number of them went to work fielding all the aircraft that we were fielding at that time the united states had to ramp up a war industry from basically zero to 100 in an extremely short amount of time and all the existing industry had to transition and we were fielding aircraft there's famous stories of airplanes that went from didn't exist to 
a concept to a plan to being built to being in the air and in less than a couple in less than you know 18 months it's amazing and there's some and i the the war industry during that period of time and the and what happened is is an amazing story and without the rosies without your your family member your ancestor it just wouldn't have happened and the outflow of that what happened with women in the workforce in general, because the men came back and largely they took their jobs back and the women got pushed out of the industrial roles. And that was a sore spot. That, that was a sore spot. My grandmother talks about that being a sore spot. She didn't work in the, in the war industry, but many of her friends did. And they were sore about being pushed back, pushed out after the men left. Now, some of the women did survive in, in, um, in munitions industry, of course, the munitions industry ramped down, but of course, the washer and dryers and the cars and all the things that began to be built during that period of time did, we went we went to that. And it was an opportunity for women, and some did persist and stay in heavy industry, but a lot did what your, your great-grandmother did, and they just transitioned to other jobs. And then a, a huge number of them, that was also the rise of the PTA. A huge number of them went into these, you know, into this super, super volunteer role and they became super volunteers. And that was also the time of the highly organized house and the highly mechanized house. And they became really good at keeping house. And so they they started to get something during that period of time that didn't go away. It just you know, for those women that didn't stay in in the industry, in heavy industry, they still went into some other area and used those skills and abilities for themselves, their family, and to enrich the nation. So it's pretty neat. Another interesting tidbit is that it wasn't just an opportunity for women, but also women of color. There are all kinds of um, African American women who are able to find jobs within the military because of that shortage of, of men. Uh, there was an army unit known as 6888 that was deployed to Central Europe during uh, February 1945 to mar- March 1946. And their job was to distribute, to sort and distribute this two-year backlog of mail from, from men at the front. And their, their motto was no mail, low morale. And they did far more than distribute letters and packages. They were the largest contingent of black women to ever serve overseas. And they did a lot to dispel stereotypes and represented a, a change in racial and gender roles in the military. Before this, there, there was no opportunity for African-American women really to serve in a significant way in the military. And this gave them a way to, to put on uniforms and go out there and make a real, you, you, you think about the big jobs in the military, the flashy ones that get medals and that kind of thing. But every piece of the puzzle is so important to making sure that those big jobs can be undertaken. And so everything from sorting the mail to cooking the food, to nursing, to everything that these women did throughout uh, World War II is really heroic in its own way as well. That kind of makes me think about that saying that things have never been as good as when they were so bad. Just that, you know, the country went to war. It wasn't, hey, let's all keep ourselves, you know, on our normal schedule and that army over there is going to war. Everyone was involved. And I think as horrible of a time as that was, there was something good about that whole everybody pitched in. We're all in it together. My, I interviewed my grandmother for a law school project about 
her memories of this time. And even though she wasn't in the war industry, she did work for the first time in her life in Macon, Georgia. And one of the things that she talked a lot about was the 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 style. This was also the era of the red lipstick. Hmm. And red lipstick came on and I and it was so scandalous. But women kind of got, you know, they they were feeling like they were a part of things. They weren't, you know, and they could do stuff and be themselves and earn some money and go buy their red lipstick. And I I don't know, there's something about the image of my grandmother talked about going down and and buying her first tube of red lipstick because she she could. Hmm. So, Liz, you talked about the contribution of many. We talked about the contribution of the individual and heroics and the heroics of individuals, but there were contributions of the many. And I want to relay one contribution that I just, because I was Air Force, I, I love this piece of the story. Congress instituted the Women's Auxiliary Army Corps. Uh, but later upgraded it to the Women's Army Corps, which had full military status. Its members, known as WACs, worked in more than 200 non-combatant jobs stateside and in every theater of the war. By 1945, there were more than 100,000 WACs and 6,000 female officers in the Navy. The Navy members of the of the of, of that organization were called um, the Waves. And they were in it. They, I just love the wax and the waves. And when I was stationed at Randolph Air Force Base, I went to our archives there and we had all these fabulous pictures of the wax and the waves at Randolph Air Force Base, Texas. And, you know, I did it during my free time. I would go over there during lunch for 30 minutes and just sort through old pictures. And, you know, the archivist was in like twice a week and, you know, he was a volunteer, but he just let me look through everything in that room. And when I transitioned, Transitioned from Randolph and was headed off to Korea to be to change change jobs and was going to Korea for for a station. I they gave me a going away gift and they got with the archivist and they found my favorite pictures and they framed those. Oh, and I have this fabulous picture of of, it, of it's the wax it all lined up in front of what's called the Taj Mahal, which is a an architectural treasure um, of the United States military. It's it's right there at the as you come into Randolph Air Force Base, Texas. It's beautiful, and um, they're all lined up there in their in their uniforms and getting ready to for a parade. And it's just just the neatest image. And I I love the sacrifices and the contributions that were made. And the wax and the waves were so important during World War II. My great aunt, Annie Bell Counts, joined the waves. You know, the women accepted for volunteer emergency service. I don't know if we said what waves means. And so she joined the waves after World War II and served in Pittsburgh and Charleston. And I always just looked at her as just this, even though she was elderly and all, you know, she just was so strong. It was like she had carried forward some of the traits that either were in her before or at least were cultivated through that experience. You know, I wonder when you're when you were talking about that, do you think there's something about I find in myself something in me wants to be part of a team still wants to do hard things? Is there something in us that is wired to form these tribes, join together with others and go and do hard things. Y'all remember when we were talking to Dr. Goldenberg and he was saying that we often try to recreate these human needs that we have. I wonder if that's a human need that in days gone by was utilized often because you had to fight against the other tribe, you know, in hunter gatherer days. I definitely (laughs) think that's true. I think that some of my best memories of the U.S. military are working with people on a mission 
deployed. When I was deployed, I was deployed on 9-11 and, not, and the balloon went up and I was in Kuwait, way too close to Iraq for, you know, for comfort. But those are some of my most poignant memories. They're seared in my mind every hour. And I can almost recall everything I did from the moment 9-11 happened, which for us was in the afternoon because of the time change. I was on the other side of the world. But I can recall every moment and I can recall the name of every member of the team. When we went into heightened alert, I can recall where they were sitting at the table when we all converged in the wing operation cell. I, I think that there's something to what you're saying, Rachel. We thrive on that togetherness and the teamwork and the, and the sense of doing it together. It's just a special thing. So I want to say think, something here about res- the reserve component in Alabama and in most southern states. Most southern states were not industrialized like, like, they, like the Northeast was. And because of that, because of that lack of an industrial base over time, economies suffered in southern states, uh, in, in most of them, in Alabama in particular. And to augment a household income, military members, and also southern states tend to be very, very patriotic. Um, the military has always been a very considered to be a very high and honorable profession. We extol our military members. We, 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 you know, we raise them up. But for I think out of a sense of patriotism and uh, research shows out of a a desire to augment household income, Alabamians have joined the Guard and the Reserves in record numbers. And it's a, a, there are consequences to that. And I want to, I want to say just a a little about that, that we don't think about. There's an organization called the Military Child Education Coalition. And the reason that organization started is because there are effects on family members. There are effects on children. Children are at risk when a military member, whether it's a father or a mother, you know, often a mother now, when they deploy, go to war, certainly get killed, there are risk factors that come into play for the family and the, and especially the children in school. That's what this organization was started to deal with. And I want I want to say this that there's tons of numbers I could I could bring up, but but one that struck me as just amazing is during the first Gulf War, percentage wise, Alabamians deployed as a as a member of the air, of the reserve component. They deployed percentage-wise more than any other state. Now, it wasn't as many in number as Texas or, you know, one of the larger states, but percentage of our population, it was larger than any other state. And that has an effect on families. So I just want to kind of put in a plug out there for on this Veterans Day week. If you know anybody who has a who has a member of their family who's in the reserves or the guard, it's important for you to know that every we think of that as a one week in a month, two weeks a year. They go, they 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 train somewhere, they come back. Uh-uh. That is not the U.S. military today. Every part of the U.S. military, the active duty, the reserves, the guards, they are all highly deployable. There's too much going on in the world now for any part of the U.S. military not to be pulling their weight. And so guardsmen, reservists, they deploy too. They put themselves in harm's way. You know, certainly active duty members do. But we in our communities are more likely to know the reservist and the guardsmen. And 
if you know somebody like that, you know, take them over a casserole one night when the family member is deployed, because I guarantee you they are struggling. You know, send your 16-year-old over to mow their grass one day, because I guarantee you they're struggling. It, it's a very hard thing for a military spouse, male or female, to keep, you know, family together, keep their home and life going when the other family member is deployed with the additional added stress of thinking about them being in danger. So I just wanted to say that too. Oh, yeah, that makes me think, you know, both of my grandfathers served in World War II. One was an Army Staff Sergeant paratrooper who had a combat jump in the Pacific Theater. The other served in the Navy as an enlisted sailor during the war and then went on to serve as a fighter and bomber pilot in the Air Force. He retired as a senior pilot and lieutenant colonel. Okay, so super impressive. But, you know, after I became a mother and, you know, a mother of five, I found my grandmother's life equally as impressive, if not as difficult, maybe more so. She was married to an Air Force officer during the height of the Cold War. They had five children and relocated to a new base every two years on average, sometimes even after a single year. So just, you know, Gigi, that's, as my children call her, held the family together. You know, she supported her husband. She supported the other families, the other wives and children on the base when they needed it. She did as much for the United States Air Force and the security of our nation as my grandfather. And, you know, nowadays when you hear generals and admirals give speeches, they mention service members and their families because they know the secret to, you know, quote, readiness, which means, you know, obviously means being ready for war depends on our families being ready. So, you know, while more and more women are serving like you did, Mary Scott, it's, you know, it is great to remember and honor the women who served in their own ways, maybe not in uniform, but in a critical way. Nonetheless, um, I think of, you know, former chief of staff of the U.S. Army, Ray Odierno, he used to say, quote, the strength of our nation is our army. The strength of our army is our soldiers and the strength of our soldiers is our families. I think this has been a wonderful way to commemorate Veterans Day. We have we have talked about those women who have served in combat roles, in non-combat roles, in allied roles, and in support roles for military service members. So we thank all of you. We thank all of you throughout history, going back to to Molly Pitcher in, in, in the Revolutionary War. And we thank all of you um, from from that point in time to today who are serving in any of those roles. And of course, he's not a female who has served um, in the U.S. military, but I want to give a quick shout out to my favorite veteran, my older brother, Douglas Robinson, who uh, served two tours in Iraq and is now in the Army National Guard here in Alabama. Happy Veterans Day to him, and uh, thank you for everything you've done. And I want to say that I'm married to a veteran who served in Operation Joint Endeavor, the peace enforcement mission in the former Yugoslavia. So a big shout out to Pepper as well. And thank you so much to all of our service members. And I am married to a veteran, um, Lieutenant Colonel John Schultz, retired Alabama Air National Guard, uh, United States Air Force. Thank you for your service, honey. Connect with Bell Curve on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or Pinterest at Bell Curve Pod. And don't forget to check out our Bell Curve Insiders Facebook page. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you download your podcast. Please leave us a review. And once again, thank you to all of you who have served. We greatly appreciate your service.